All right, I want to welcome everybody this morning to our continuing study of the letter to the Colossian church. And we've made our way to about the middle of Colossians chapter 1. And what we have this morning as a local church is we have a beautiful passage of Scripture from the Holy Spirit of God to us, His people. Now that is true every single week. Uh, without exception, because all Scripture is breathed out by God. But I want to highlight that truth this morning. We have a beautiful passage of Scripture to cover together this morning. This is a gift from God the Holy Spirit to this local church. And so we're going to give attention to these words. And as we do that, what, what are we doing this Sunday and every single Sunday? As we are gathering together... As disciples of Jesus, and there ought to be something true of this local church today and every Sunday that we gather together. And one thing that ought to mark us week in and week out is every disciple in this room ought to have a burning passion in your soul to know your Savior that died for your sins. That you would know Him more. That you would worship Him more. And we long for that. May that be true for every single one of us that we want to increase in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ever expanding mind about Jesus Christ and heart filled with affections for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But you know what follows that amen, if we were to get really honest, is that every single one of us in this room, you know what it's like to be colder towards Jesus Christ than you ought to be. Every single one of us know that. That our level of affection and worship and knowledge and praise of Christ falls far short of what He deserves and what He is worthy of. And we don't want to just accept that about ourselves and say that it's true. We know that it's true. But we hate that about ourselves. That we, of all people, that we can know what we know from God's Word about Jesus Christ. That we can have minds filled with knowledge about who Christ is. And our hearts have this massive gap. And they refuse to burn with zeal and have heat in the soul for our Savior. We hate that about ourselves. Hate that about ourselves. That's one of the things that we long for in heaven is that at the resurrection on the final day, our sin will be forever removed, and we, for the first time in all of our existence, we will see Jesus Christ with no sin nature. We will see Him in His full radiance, and that gap won't be there anymore. We will worship Him with all that is in us. We will bless His holy name forever, forever. But in this world, we're in a battle. We're in a battle to see Christ rightly, to behold His glory. And so the only remedy for that coldness for any of us, the remedy is always the same, that we need the truth from God's Word about Jesus and we need it hammered into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit today. We need the Holy Spirit every single day. And we can even say it like this, that unless we're charismatic in a good sense, unless we are longing for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we will die cold towards Christ. We will persist in our coldness 
unless the Spirit revives us, unless He hammers these truths about Jesus deep into our soul and makes it burn in our hearts. And so that's what we're going to pray and ask God to help us to do this morning, that He would meet with us, that He would draw near to us and make these words that we're going to study this morning, that He would make them effective in our life. So let's pray. Father, we come to You today. Lord, and we pray the same things that we just sung to You, Lord. Our desire today is to give You all glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory in this church, in every church. We desire to bring You the highest of praise. That the high praise of God would be in our mouths this morning. And rendered to you from hearts ravished by Christ, by the glory of Jesus. Lord, we ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. And yet we can by no means declare all of it, Lord. But we say it today, God, it is true. All power, all honor, all dominion, all praise, all wisdom is yours, Lord. And all of creation. You deserve the highest place. You are the King of kings. And Lord, we desire to see you rightly today. Lord, we desire to see you rightly carrying this forward into this coming week, Lord. God, would you break through and would you help us? Would you help us, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to our hearts and to our minds today? Lord, would you do it with authority and power and gentleness and authenticity? Lord, would you drive the things of Jesus into us? And as you exalt the Son in our midst, Lord, would you set our souls right? Would you set us right, Lord, as we behold Christ, the one for whom we were made to worship? And in those moments, God, would you banish fear and anxiety? And would you comfort us in suffering? And would you drive out idols all across this room? God, I pray for anyone in our midst today that is dead in their sins. God, we pray that you would let the light shine out of darkness this morning. And that you would turn the lights on in their soul in regards to Jesus Christ. Lord, visit us. As we study your word, fill us up in our souls with nourishment this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, let's start out our time this morning. Let's read our passage together. Colossians chapter 1. We'll start at verse 19 and we'll read verse 19 and 20 together. And I say this. Almost every week. These are, without exception, the most important words that you're going to hear me say in the next hour. These are the words of God. And so let's read them together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Thus says the Lord. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
beautiful passage of Scripture, gift from the Holy Spirit to this local church this morning. So in the past several weeks, we've been walking through this paragraph of Scripture in Colossians chapter 1, from verse 15 all the way to verse 20 that we'll finish today. And what we've seen as we've studied through this is that Christ is repetitively revealed as the supreme one above every other created thing. And we saw this in language that stacks on top of each other, running right on top of each other, that Jesus is preeminent over and above all that He has made. And we're going to see that same theme continue this morning, that Christ is above all. He is supreme over all. He is Lord over all. None stands beside Him. No rivals to Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, I'll say this. As we go after that, as we go after seeing Jesus Christ rightly, my prayer for you today is that the Holy Spirit would captivate your heart with the glory of Christ. That He would arrest your attention with the things of Jesus. That He would do that. Many of you have experienced that many times over in your life. And we desire God to do that today. And as I prayed earlier, if there's anybody in this room and you do not know Jesus Christ, our prayer as a local church, not just me, but our prayer for you is that God the Holy Spirit would make dead souls live even while we're preaching these words. Even while we're giving attention to the glory of Jesus, that He would grant a new birth, even in, in these moments. That's our prayer for you. That God would move in our midst this morning as we seek to exalt His holy name together. So let's grab the scope of what we're about to look at. I want you to examine it in your mind for just a moment. This is breathtaking. Okay? We're, we're way, way, way high up this morning in the Word of God. So we're going to walk through this passage under these three headings. The first is this. Jesus Christ is exalted. Exalted. And we're going to behold His glory. And then we're going to look at Jesus Christ in His humiliation. And we're going to see the depths that this exalted God-man stoops to save sinners. And then we're going to close our time this morning by giving attention to Jesus Christ in His eternal kingdom. This is the scope. This is where we're headed this morning. doesn't get any higher than this in all of God's Word. And so I say that to say this. I'm encouraging you, even now, that you would prepare your hearts and your minds to hear from the living God today. That you would pray, even as, we're preach, as I'm preaching through these words, God, speak to me. God, speak to my neighbor. Reveal the glory of Christ all over this room. And so, in a sense, not in a literal way, we are about to check out of this world for a moment. And we're going to behold heavenly, unseen, eternal things. And we don't want to be distracted. We want to behold the glory of Christ. So let's begin... Under heading number one, Jesus Christ exalted. Jesus Christ exalted. And you see this in the opening words of verse 19. I'll read them again. It says this, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased 
to dwell. Was pleased to dwell. So here's, here's where we're going. First thing this morning is I want you to think about what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? And the passage answers that question with this. We are talking about the fullness of God. That's what we're talking about today. The fullness of God. Those words describe the totality of the being of God. Everything that God is, is summarized in those words, the fullness of God. So all across this room, that's what the Holy Spirit wants you thinking about this morning. He wants you to give attention to the fullness of God. Now, full disclosure. We just said something that we can't really do. Okay? That we are called to give attention to, to meditate on, to imagine, to think about something in finite human minds. And here's what we're supposed to be jamming in there. The fullness of God. And so on the front end, we know that we can't really do that in, in, in all of its beauty, in all of its splendor, in all of its majesty. Why? Because God is infinite. The God of Scripture is infinite. And by definition, that means no limits, never ceases. His power is infinite. No limits, it never ceases. You can't quantify it. And yet, these words in some way are summarizing the fullness of that infinite God. This is what we're supposed to be giving attention to this morning. The fullness of of the infinite God of Scripture. I want to give us a few reminders of who the God of the Bible is. And then we're going to turn the corner and we're going to consider Him in all of His fullness. The first is this, in Isaiah chapter 6. Who is the God of Scripture? In Isaiah chapter 6, He is revealed to us as the God in whose presence created angels are hiding themselves from the radiance and the brightness and the glory that flows from this God. And so these created beings called seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, they are covering themselves, shielding themselves from the glory of the God of Scripture while they scream loud enough to shake the temple in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's nothing small about Him. He's a mighty, majestic, glorious God. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read a passage together. to read this slow and consider every phrase we see here. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to start in verse 12, right after that goes in there. Alright, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. What are we doing when we read this? We're reminding ourselves who the God of Scripture is. And so you give attention to these questions. Isaiah 40, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span. You think about that. Hold your hand out like this. 
Not literally, but if you want to, that's fine. Like this, just a little cup. That verse just said that all the water that you can even begin to imagine is in the hollow of the hand of this God. And every ounce of matter in all the universe was stretched out in a span by this God. He's massive, He's infinite, He's glorious in His greatness. Let's, let's keep reading. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance. You ever done that? That passage just says that all of planet earth, all of its mountains, all the dirt, all the stuff, He throws it on a little bitty scale in front of Him and it's like nothing before Him. Like nothing before Him. Let's keep reading. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man has shown Him counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the paths of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? And the answer to all of those questions is no one. No one did those things. Why? Because He knows all things. No one teaches God anything. He is God only wise. God infinite in wisdom, in power, and in glory. This is the God of Scripture. Listen to this in Job chapter 26, verse 14. It says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of His ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand it? Who can understand it? So I want you to think about that. We just read basically two verses and we could read many, many, many more. Verses in the Bible that reveal the God of Scripture as matchless in glory, infinite in power, in might, and in wisdom. But here's what we see from that verse that we just saw in Job. Every one of those passages are revealing the outskirts of His ways, the fringes of His garments, just a whisper, just scratching the surface of the glory of the God of Scripture. But our passage today is talking about His fullness. Not the outskirts of His ways, not the fringes of His garment, not the whisper, but the thunder of His power. God in all of His infinite glory. God in all of His fullness. That's what we're supposed to be thinking about this morning. The word all, so all the fullness of God, is just ramming this in that we're double sure that we are talking about the totality of who God is without anything excluded. Everything that God is. That's the what. And then this passage moves from the what to the who. From the what to the who. And this transition, it provokes worship in the church of Jesus Christ. From the what to the who. Verse 19 says, the fullness of God dwells in Him. In Him. And this is Jesus Christ. And so let's connect these dots and let's sit here for several, several minutes. And behold the glory of our God. This passage is telling us that the totality of who 
God is without any exception dwells in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 makes it even clearer. It says this, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ Jesus. Dwells bodily in Christ Jesus. So this is very, very clear in the Word of God that everything that God is, God in all of His radiant, full glory dwells, catch this, in the human body of Jesus. Pause right there. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Those words just told us that the infinite God dwells in all of His infiniteness in a finite human body in the person of Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely blowing the human mind. None like Jesus Christ. I'll say just a few things here. Don't be misled by the word dwell. Okay? The fullness of deity doesn't dwell in Jesus the way the Holy Spirit dwells in the believers. It's not like that. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is not true of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit didn't become you. But God in all of His fullness became humanity in the person of Christ. And so this is getting us to, the, to, the, to a very foundational fundamental truth that Christianity is built off of. This is that identity of Jesus Christ. Who is He? Who is He? And from this passage, we see that Jesus is both God and man. He is both God and man. In fact, the ancient church has referred to Jesus as the Theanthropos, the God-man. This has been His name for thousands of years. He is the God-man. In all of His glory. Two natures. God, man, one Christ. Christ Jesus. He is God and man. One glorious person. Two natures. So we can say it like this. Jesus Christ is just as much God as the Father is God. And Jesus Christ is just as much man as anybody in this room is man. Minus sin. He is God and He is Man, And so I want us to sit for several minutes in this glorious contrast of the fullness of God dwelling in the human body of Jesus. You get this wrong and you have no hope of salvation throughout all of eternity. Unless He is the God-man, you die in your sins and you have no salvation. Nothing about this is tertiary. This is very central to our salvation. So we're going to look at both of these truths. And the first is this. The Bible reveals Jesus as a man. The Bible reveals Him as a man. So I want you to think about this. It is not wrong to say that Jesus Christ was a man. Okay? Provided that you turn the corner to what we're going to talk about in just a moment. 
And so what, what is the doctrine that gets us to this place? That Jesus is a man. And it's the doctrine referred to as the incarnation or the infleshing of God the Son, that second person of the Trinity. And when did this happen? When did the fullness of God dwell in a human body? It's amazing. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1 that this happens in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In the womb of the Virgin Mary that this, that this human body is created. And His name is Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation. The fullness of deity dwelt in a real human body. He was really knit together in his mother's womb. And then going forward from that, he's a real man. He passes through all the stages of growth and development that we pass through. He grew in stature in a real human body. It's not a phantom. It's not a spirit. It doesn't seem to be a body, but it's a real body. The Bible says that it's real flesh and blood, and it's subject to the same things that your body is subject to. Okay? Pleasure and pain. Hunger and thirst, suffering and death. A real human body which makes Jesus a real man. He was a real man. And he was prophesied to be so in the Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Christ. And one stream of prophecy announces that he's going to be a man. The Old Testament calls him the offspring of Abraham. The seed of the woman, the offspring of David, the son of man, and the man of sorrows. He's a man. He was prophesied to be a man thousands of years before he arrived on planet earth. And, and, and the New Testament just plainly refers to Jesus as a man. It calls him the man Christ Jesus. Okay? Now let's back up right there. If he's not a man then He cannot die for your sins. Do you understand that? If He is not a man, then there is no salvation. He can't bleed out and die as a substitute in your place, bearing your wrath for sinners. He has to be a man. But that's not all the Bible says about Him. The same Bible that describes Jesus as a man also describes Jesus as God as God. And you have to have both of these or you are in swimming in heresy. In fact, me and Hunter talked to two men for over an hour this week and all they saw and all they magnified were, were those verses like we just talked about. Jesus is a man. But they never turned the corner and dealt with these other verses that, yes, but that same Bible that you're talking about that reveals Him as a man says that He is God. Says that He is God. And so listen to this. From the moment of that incarnation in the womb of the Virgin Mary, do you know what they called Him in that millisecond? They called Him the Son of the Most High. Because He was begotten not from man, but from the Holy Spirit. He was the Son of the Most High in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then He's born and you have this little baby in Luke chapter 2. As He is brought into the world, you have stars lining up in heaven. 
that lead Magi all the way across the world to worship Him while angels fire up this chorus in the heavens and they begin to magnify the Christ of God. This little bitty baby is God. He is God in the flesh. Many have referred to Him as deity in diapers. Just grab the contrast there. Think about that. Think about that. Deity in diapers. The Old Testament announces this. So you have one stream of prophecy that announces to us that a man is coming. A deliverer. The son of man. The man of sorrows. And then you have this other stream of prophecy talking about the same Christ. And here's the names that He is called in the Old Testament. Mighty God. That's just settling all, right? He is mighty God. There will be a baby that will be born. His name will be Mighty God. The Father of eternity. Who's coming forth. Micah chapter 5 is from ancient of days. Ancient of days. And so the very same Old Testament that prophesied the humanity of the Messiah also prophesies the deity of Jesus Christ. And then we get to the New Testament and things get explicitly clear. Explicitly. These are the names of Jesus in the New Testament. Just a few of them. Jesus is called the Almighty in Revelation chapter 1. The Lord, the King of Kings in Revelation 19. Our great God and Savior, Titus chapter 2. Christ who is God over all, Romans chapter 9. This is who He is. This is the, the, the problem that, that we're confronted with. That we have the same book and it speaks about Him in both of these ways. He is the God-man. Even in our paragraph that we've been studying, Jesus is said to have been the Creator of all things. That all things were made through Him and not only that, for Him. He made everything that you can imagine for Himself. He's the Creator, the Ruler, and the Sustainer of the entire universe. He's God. And it gets even more clear. The New Testament makes Jesus Christ, the God-man, it makes Him the object of faith and the object of worship. And the logical conclusion to that is only God is that. Only God is the object of faith. And only God is worshipped. In Scripture, listen to this. Jesus Christ is not just a man. Jesus Christ looks to all humanity and He commands every human being to repent of their sins and believe in Him. And believe in Him. To bow at His feet and to serve Him. And everyone who does that, Jesus Christ promises to all humanity that He, not anyone else, that He would give them eternal life and that He, not anyone else, He would raise them up on the last day. That's an amazing thing for a man to claim because He's not just a man. He is the God-man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. It says, When God brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Worship Him. You think about that. We saw just a sliver of that in Luke chapter 2 as the infant, infant Jesus laid in the manger and the angels began to praise and to worship and to glorify God. 
But you see this play out in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5. And all the angels of God and all the created beings and all the church of God is falling down and worshiping the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And we know that the God of the Bible, He shares His glory with no one. No one. And so how do we resolve this tension? How do we square this circle? The Bible presents both of these things to us and they seem to be in contradiction. Is He God or is He man? And we've already said the answer to that is both. He is God and man. And not in the diluted sense. Okay? Not in the diluted sense in, in the way that His deity swallows up His humanity. And He's mostly God and kind of man. And not in the, way, the other way around where His humanity dilutes His deity. Where He's mostly man but a little bit God. That's not who He is. He is fully God as much as the Father. And He is fully man as much as you and me minus sin. He is the God-man. And we are commanded to believe both of these things about Jesus. Okay? This is the part that you won't hear on the History Channel. Right? Of, of the little, we figured out the details of the resurrection. You won't hear this part. That same Bible that you're using to try to piece together these things proclaims that the man is God. He is the God man. And the Bible never apologizes to us for presenting both of these streams of language about Jesus. In fact, very often, especially in the Gospels, you will see. Both of these affirmations made in a very close proximity to each other. And it's almost like God the Holy Spirit is just letting us have it. No, no apology necessary. This is who He is. He's God and He's man. Turn to Mark chapter 4. I'll show you an example of this. So if somebody hands you a Bible and you begin to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... And they ask you the question, who does this book say that Jesus really is? These are the types of things that you would continuously bump into and you would begin to scratch your head and say, well, I don't know, because sometimes it seems like He's man and sometimes it seems like He's God. And my favorite description of this is in Mark chapter 4. And what happens around verse 35 is that what's called a megastorm breaks out on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in the boat with His disciples. They have determined to go to the other side of the sea, to go do ministry on the other side of the sea. And on their way there, a megastorm breaks out on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are panicking. They think that they are about to die. The boat that they are in is taking on water. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus? It tells us that He is asleep in the stern of the boat. So you're reading with that grid, who is He? And you're saying, well, He's asleep. God never sleeps or slumbers. Jesus is a man. This is evidence of His humanity. His humanity is being revealed. He's asleep. He's perfect humanity. He's trusting God in the midst of a megastorm, but He is asleep. He's a man. And then here's the, here, here, here's, here's the immediate confrontation. Okay? About three verses later, I'll read verse 39 to you. That man who is asleep does this. Verse 39. He awoke 
and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Raise your hand in the room if you've ever done that. Never. Creation doesn't obey your voice. You can go screaming as loud as you possibly can in the parking lot. Let rain fall from the heavens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. You go to a seminary, uh, uh, cemetery, sorry, and you say, come forth, and nobody comes out of the ground. Nobody. Creation does not obey your voice. The disciples heard that happen that day on the Sea of Galilee in the mega storm, and you know what they said? Two verses later, they said, Who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? Who is this? He's not just a man. And you see that in, in the matter of a few verses in the Word of God. The man is sleeping in the stern of the boat. And the Creator in human flesh gets up and rebukes creation. Rebukes creation. In the span of just a few verses, He is revealed to us as the God man. And as you read the Gospels, it's not like that tension is resolved anywhere. It's still there. It comes up over and over and over again because this is who He is. He is the God-man. So you're reading. Somebody hands you this Bible and you're supposed to find out who is Jesus according to this book. And you're reading the Gospels and you find out in John's Gospel that the same one who ate bread and fish with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, a couple weeks go by and you know what happens? They see the same one who sat down by the sea and ate food with them. They see him strolling across the water in the middle of the night. Again, the question is, anybody ever done that? You see the humanity of Jesus. He's eating bread. He's eating fish. God doesn't eat. He has a real human body. And then a few chapters later, you see the God-man strolling upon the raging waters Creation bowing down to Him and obeying His voice. And you say, well, who is He? And the only answer to the question is that Jesus is the God-man. Glorious God-man. Keep going. In John's Gospel, you're reading through and, and, and towards the end of the Gospel, Jesus says something like this from His cross. He says, I thirst. Revealing His humanity. He is in a real human body. That body is dying. And He is feeling thirsty. He is suffocating and dehydrating on His cross. He's a real human in a real body. And He's about to die. And you're scratching your head and you say, Yeah, but just earlier in the same Gospel, the same Christ that said, I thirst, looked at His enemies in the face and told every one of them, Before Abraham was, I am. Same mouth spoke those two words. One reveals His humanity. The other reveals His glorious deity. He is the God-man. Same can be said. The disciples watched the Savior weep by the tomb of Lazarus. He weeped. He is weeping physical tears. He is experiencing grief and remorse. And He is having compassion on those in suffering. And you say, look at that man. Gentle, lowly Jesus. Look at him there. And we amen that. All of that. 
few verses later go by, that same man turns to that same tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Creation obeys his voice and a dead man walks out of the tomb, been dead three days. His deity is revealed in just a few verses after we see his humanity. And you see that tension going back and forth over and over again in the Gospels into the climax. At the very end of those Gospels, you see the final portrayal of that glorious contrast. Friday, Son of God incarnate, dead on the cross. Dead. Heart stops beating. Corpse. Cold, dead human body. Three days later, Son of God incarnate, raises Himself from the dead. Resurrected Christ conquers death. Is He God or is He man? He is the God-man. The only one who can save us from our sins. In His humanity, He becomes our substitute. But in His deity, He overcomes death. He is the living Savior of sinners. And we say this, there is none like Jesus Christ. There is none like Him. He shares His glory with no one. None can stand beside Him as His rival. Why? Because the fullness of the deity. Not just part of it. Not just the outskirts. The fullness of who God is dwells in His human body. He is the glorious Christ of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And I love that verse because it, 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 it tells us this. We confess this as a great mystery. That means that there's no Christian in the room that's walking around saying, I know all the intricacies of how these two natures dwell in this one Christ. I know it all. This is beyond our finite comprehension. It is a great mystery. But we know enough to know this. We know enough that we know we should worship this Christ. That this is a great mystery that God was manifested in the flesh. We know enough about the incarnation to praise His holy name. There is none like Jesus Christ. There is none like Him. And I want you to think about this. This is who He is. Fullness of God in a human body. We don't understand it all, but we know what's clear from God's Word. Everything that we just covered. And I want you to think about this. He comes into the world. The Creator invades His creation. In the womb of Mary. You see things start out uh, in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. Angels worshiping Him. Magi, shepherds. And then you think, what, what should He have received when He got here? Because that party, so to speak, was really short-lived. The Creator invades His creation. The God-man walking among humanity. What should He have received when He arrived? And we, we say, if that's true, if everything is true, we believe it is because we, we believe the Word of God, then when the God-man arrived, He should have been worshipped by every molecule in existence. When the Creator, the infinite God, invaded His creation, we should have 
hailed Him as King of all. As King of all. This is what He deserved, but that's not what He initially received. Think about this. That's not what He initially received. There should have been this massive, universal, red carpet ceremony. Hail Him the King of all. But we didn't do that. You know what humanity did? The God-man invaded His creation, and instead of bowing down and worshiping the Christ of God, God in human flesh, you know what we said? Nail Him to the cross. He invades humanity, Creator walking among His creation. And we say, crucify the Christ of God. Crucify God in human flesh. He was rejected. He was not inaugurated. There was no universal red carpet ceremony, at least not yet. He was rejected. He was rejected. And humanity killed the Christ. Killed the God-man. And, you know, in the same breath, we only did to Him what He allowed us to do. And that tells us that Jesus did not invade His creation as the God-man, two natures and one Christ, to go straight to the throne and be exalted over all creation. That was not His plan. If He would have done that, do you realize how bad of news that would be for all of creation? That the Christ is born and He goes straight to the throne and He reigns over every human being. Now you have the exalted God-man over heaven and earth and now you die and you face Him in judgment and you have no sacrifice for sin. There is no gospel. There is no way to be made right with Him. All you are looking at is blazing authority. And you stand on the wrong side of His judgment. He didn't come to be inaugurated as King immediately. He came to do a work for us on the cross. And the way that we've said this many times over is that the Creator invades His creation on a rescue mission to save sinners. Why is the fullness of God in human flesh? To save sinners like you and like me. And the, and the words used in our passage that tip us off to this design, the intent of the incarnation, is it tells us that the fullness of God is in human flesh to do something. And the words that are used, He's here to reconcile by making peace. Look at this. This is Jesus Christ humiliated in verse 20. That same Christ that we just discussed in verse 20 at the very end, it says that He is making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, more than anything else today, I don't want you to miss this drastic shift. Okay? This shift that we're seeing right here, you will never understand the glory of the Gospel unless you see the exalted one humiliated. You have to see that gap that Christ descended, that He condescended down. You have to see it as an infinite gap. And so that's where our passage takes us. We have hit a massive shift in this passage. This is like going up to the, to the very edge of the Grand Canyon or some 
great chasm and dropping off the very edge of it. And say, what are you talking about? In one verse of Scripture, we transition from the fullness of God in a human body to a, that same human body hanging like a dead corpse on His bloody cross. Can you even begin to comprehend the depths that Jesus Christ has descended to save sinners? This is who died on the cross for our sins. The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You have to behold that. You have to look at that. has to become beautiful to you. So look at that contrast. In one verse... We go from a declaration of full-throttle deity to a declaration of a dead corpse on a bloody cross. Brothers and sisters, there has never been humiliation like this. There has never been condescension like this. Never in all of history has one so high, so exalted, stooped so low, and become so humiliated. This is exactly what is said to us in Philippians chapter 2. I'll, I'll read in verse 6. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2 pictures the cross as the very bottom of the descent of the incarnate God-man. He humbled Himself. Just the fact that He became a man is humiliating to the eternal God. And then He came to us in the likeness of a servant, further humbling Himself, serving humanity, Then He became obedient, humbling Himself, serving us all the way down to it ending on a bloody cross. Him giving His life on a cross for our sins. In our passage, the word blood, He's making peace by the blood of His cross. That's reminding every one of us that when we say Jesus died for our sins, that blood is reminding us He died a violent death. His life was violently ended. He did not die of old age. He did not die of natural causes. He was slaughtered for sinners. He's the Lamb of God that was butchered as a sacrifice for sinners. The word cross reminds us that the Christ of God, He died under capital punishment under the Roman government on the cross, on the instrument of crucifixion. He died as a criminal. He died a shameful death. All the way to the bottom, He has descended to serve sinners and to save sinners. The glorious One in whom the fullness of deity dwells has humiliated Himself to save us. Died a shameful death like a criminal on the cross. You never get the Gospel until you begin to linger over that gap and that glorious condescension of Jesus Christ. The exalted God over all. That's what the passage that we're in, the entire paragraph, that's what it tells us. Okay, Verse 15. The Creator of all things, 
who made all things for Himself. Verse 17, the upholder of all things. Verse 18, the sovereign over all that He has made, the preeminent one in all of God's creation. That's the one that died, bled out on the cross for our sins. Praise to His holy name. Never has one so exalted, stooped so low. This is His humiliation. And it's accomplishing something for us on the cross. We don't hear this and it's not just, oh, this is so sad. There is that. But there's something else happening. He's being humiliated and while that's happening, He's accomplishing a work. Our passage says He's making peace on that cross. He's reconciling on that cross. There's something happening on that cross that you can't see with human eyes. And we know this. That on the cross, Jesus is dying as the substitute, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. This contrast, exalted Christ, with this lowly, humble cross, it is so drastic. Just those phrases, that phrase, the cross of Christ. That is such a drastic contrast that the cross of Christ becomes the hinge on which all of history swims. Okay? This is the turning point. This is the pivot for all of human history, all of time. And here's what I mean by that. Once you see that gap that He and you see the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, the next question that you ought to be asking is if that's who died on the cross for sinners, and if he and if he gave his life to, the, if he gave it all to the very end, dead, 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 then what in the world does that slaughtered Christ? What in the world does that death accomplish? What are going to be the effects of that death? What in the world could be next? And our passage tells us that what's following that crucified and bloodied and slaughtered Christ is nothing short. From an entirely new world. This is our third heading this morning. You see this in verse 20? It says He's doing this. Listen close. To reconcile to Himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. All things. The death of Jesus is going to affect all things. In the context of that paragraph, that can only mean the entire created universe. Things in heaven and things on earth. Nothing short of the entire universe is going to be affected by the God-man bleeding out on His cross. That should not be hard for any of us to grasp if we grasp the first part. What follows the fullness of God in a human body being crucified and killed under the hands of His sinful creation? And Colossians answered us, an entirely renewed universe. Reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. Think about this. We know from the early chapters of Genesis and following, we know that when Adam sinned, the entire creation was plunged into a curse. God cursed creation. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God cursed creation in hopes that He would redeem creation. Creation was placed under the curse because of human sin. Our passage is telling us that on His cross, 
Jesus is undoing all of that. Jesus is undoing the curse that was pronounced on the creation because of human sin. And what this means for us is that we live and move in a form of this world that is passing away. Passing away like a vapor. It's on its way out. The form of the world that we now live in is passing away. It's transient. And we know from God's Word, according to the promise of God, that we are waiting on a what? A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the world that we live in is on its way out. But there's an entirely new world coming, a new universe coming in which righteousness dwells. And our passage tells us that in that new universe, in that new world, all things, without exception, will be reconciled to the Christ of God. This is beautiful language in God's Word. An immediate thing pops into our mind. Wait a second. Wait a second. Are you saying that every sinner, as it all shakes out and in the very end, that every sinner who dies without repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus Christ, freely accepting His gift of salvation. Are you saying that every sinner, when it all shakes out, is saved? And I will say, God forbid that we say that. That's the exact opposite of what God's Word says. So when we say that the entire universe is going to be affected by the cross of Jesus, we don't mean because God's Word does not teach that everyone is going to be saved. That's a false teaching and a heresy known as universalism. So we say without apology that the effects of the cross go to the very ends of the universe. But that does not mean that every sinner will be saved. We know that because the verses about hell in the Bible speak about hell as a real place and it's populated with real people throughout eternity. We know that. The smoke of their torment never ceases to rise because God, the just judge of Scripture, pours out wrath on those who rebel against Him. We know that. We know that hell is full in the Bible. We know that. So what does this mean? If it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? And it means this. There is not a nook, not a cranny, not a crevice in all of the creation that will be unaffected by the cross of Jesus Christ. Not one. And then we would qualify that by this statement. But that doesn't mean that the cross is going to affect everything the same way. Everything will be affected by the cross of Christ, but not in the same way. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Read two verses. Listen to verse 14. It says this, By canceling the record of death, that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so I want you to have this grid. Okay? The cross of Christ affects all things, but not in the same way. Verse 14, the cross of Christ affects believers. Their sin debt is hammered to the tree in the body of Jesus. And the cross of Christ is affected to justify them 
before God the righteous judge. He puts away our sin forever at the cross and judges Jesus in our place. And then in verse 15, you see that same cross and it has a different effect. Okay? It affects believers in this way in verse 14, but in verse 15, the cross has an effect over demons, over rebellious created beings. Listen to the words that are used here. On the cross, Jesus disarms them, triumphs over them, puts them to an open shame. Do you see that? Everything is affected, but not in the same way. Some will be saved at the cross and others will be triumphed over at the cross. This is what we see in Colossians. There is coming a universe where everything will be brought under His dominion forever. And so you can think about it like this. On the cross, Jesus dies as the Prince of Peace. And of the increase, Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. When's the peace and the government of Jesus going to end? There's never going to be an end. Always expanding sovereignty and authority over all things. That's who died for us on the cross. And so on the cross, He is making peace. He is doing a work of reconciliation and making peace. And you have two ways to, to, to accept that peace. To, to come into the peace that He is bringing over all the created world. And the first is this, that you freely accept. That you confess your great sinfulness to God. That you confess your great need of a Savior to God. And that you in humility bow before the Christ of God. That you repent of your sins and you confess Him to be your only hope of salvation. And you trust in His finished work on your behalf on the cross. You can receive His peace like receiving a free gift from Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's one option. The only other option that you have is His peace will be enforced upon you. It will be imposed upon you. He in a sovereign power move at the end of eternity, He will enforce His authority over all of the universe. All of the universe. Like a military conqueror, the, the spoils of war, His authority will be over all. All of His enemies will be placed under His feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to how this is described in Philippians chapter 2. There will be nowhere in the created universe that His peace is not imposed. Philippians chapter 2, we read this earlier. I'm going to pick up where we left off. Where we left off earlier was the descent of the God-man. All the way down to obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. The lowest he stooped in his condescension. And then the very next verse, verse 9, starts with this word, therefore. Therefore. Because of what he has done, because of the depths that he has stooped, Therefore, something's about to happen. Listen close. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee in all the universe will bow to Jesus Christ. Either now unto salvation or then to everlasting torment and damnation. But every knee will bow. This is the reward for his suffering. This is the therefore. Because of what he did, this is what he gets. Ruling sovereignty over all things. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. All of creation, without exception, will be brought into submission to King Jesus. There's a world coming where all things will be reconciled unto Jesus Christ. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the reward of His suffering. He will be glorified in every way and above all things. He will have universal peace and universal sovereignty. And I just want to pause right here. Okay? Therefore, my counsel to every person in this room is that you would get in line with the direction that all the universe is headed to. Submission to Jesus Christ. You, the only choice you have is how it's going to happen. You don't, have, you don't get to determine whether it happens or not. You will bow the knee now and call Him the Savior or you will bow the knee in eternity and you will call Christ Jesus Lord of all. But every knee will bow. And I just give that to you as a plea. Isn't that the most logical thing that you could possibly imagine? That I'm going to line my life up with the, with the way that every molecule in the universe is headed. Submission to Jesus Christ. This is the new heavens, the new earth, the kingdom of Christ in eternity. Isaiah gives us a description of the universe as it's restored to the Maker. We'll close with this in Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 6 says this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. It's only a matter of time. Jesus Christ will reign over every created thing. It is only a matter of time. This is the reward for the crucified one. And so brothers and sisters, we back up and let's just close with just a few questions. Okay? Should we not praise such a Christ? The fullness of God that died in our place for our sins. The fullness of God died for us. Should we not praise Him? Should we not give Him the highest of praise and the greatest of glories? He is the God-man who died for our sins. And brothers and sisters, should we not, in the same breath, should we not confess that because that is true, 
Because Jesus in His body, the fullness of God dwells, should we not confess that therefore He is everything that we need? He is everything that we need and nothing that I need can be found outside of Him. He is a sufficient Christ because He is the fullness of deity. The fullness of the infinite one. And so we sing this song very often. Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. What you're singing is hallelujah. All I have is the fullness of the infinite one. I have all things. I have everything I need in Jesus. And in the same breath, should we not leave here encouraged today, brothers and sisters, that we are headed towards a universe where the knowledge of Jesus Christ will cover the created world like water covers the sea. Like water covers the sea. I love that picture. Should we not praise Him? Should we not long for that day with Christ Jesus in the new creation where He receives the reward for His suffering and His exaltation that follows His humiliation? We should long for this day. We praise Christ that it's only a matter of time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, we ask You that You would visit us, Lord, that You would make Your Word effective, cause it to be like a seed as You declare it to be in Your Word. A seed that goes down into the soul and bears fruit in our life. God, I ask for affections for Jesus Christ, that You would use this passage unto that end in this local church, that we would be a people that exalt our Lord, that hold fast to our head. And we ask this in Jesus' name.